This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. This is The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Just a quick reminder, Season 3 of the television program, The Conspiracy Show, debuts across Canada, Vision TV, August 11th, 10 p.m., 13 brand new episodes. The, uh, the next hour of the program promises to be a difficult one. The subject matter is sensitive, the questions that arise are uncomfortable and inconvenient, but nevertheless, the information which is about to be brought forward deserves to be heard. It needs to be heard so that you can hear it, consider it, make up your own mind as to what really happened or didn't happen back in December of 2012 in Newtown, Connecticut, and I'm speaking, of course, of the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting, during which we are told a terribly disturbed young man uh, by the name of Adam Lanza forced his way into a school armed with a 22 caliber Bushmaster rifle and other weapons and fatally shot 20 young school children and six adults before shooting himself. The incident was the deadliest mass shooting at a high school or grade school in U.S. history the second deadliest mass shooting by a single person in U.S. history after the 2007 Virginia Tech massacre. Now, back in May, a former Florida state trooper by the name of Wolfgang Helbig traveled to Newtown to investigate the shooting. He's a former work and safety assessment expert. He's conducted school safety assessments for more than 8,000 school districts across the United States. And when he watched the events at Sandy Hook unfold, there were a number of things he saw that just didn't add up. Uh, And so he began his own investigation, and he sent out FOIA requests for more information, and those were all declined. So he traveled to Newtown back in May and started poking around. And I made several requests or attempts to get Mr. Helbig on the program, and for whatever reason, it never panned out. So my next guest, however has agreed to come on the program, and as it turns out, he traveled to Newtown with Wolfgang, and listen, they were met with stony silence by the officials there. They would not cooperate. 
they were met with scorn. And some of you may be saying, good, they deserved it. How dare they start raising these uncomfortable questions, poking around, raising these conspiracy theories. Haven't the people in Newtown suffered enough? Okay, fine. However, I'm asking you, if you're prepared to listen for the next hour, I'm asking you, reserve judgment. Listen to what he has to say. And then, make up your own mind. Admittedly, it's a difficult subject, and it's sensitive. And maybe you don't want to listen, and that's fine too. But for those of you who wish to hear it, let's get started. Jim Fetzer has published widely on the theoretical foundations of scientific knowledge, computer science, artificial intelligence, cognitive science, and evolution and mentality. He's also published a number of articles relating to the Sandy Hook shooting. He's a McKnight Professor Emeritus at the University of Minnesota Duluth. He's also conducted extensive research into the assassination of JFK, the events of 9-11, and the plane crash that killed Senator Paul Wellstone. He's the founder of Scholars for 9-11 Truth, and his latest books include The Evolution of Intelligence, The 9-11 Conspiracy, Render Unto Darwin, and The Place of Probability in Science. Jim Fetzer, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Well, great, Richard. Real pleasure to be back on with you again. Uh, likewise. Uh, I mentioned a couple of times that uh, this Wolfgang Halbig uh, individual, uh, now, I've, I've tried and failed to get him on my show on two separate occasions, and, and what I wanted, if you can, uh, establish is this gentleman's bona fides. In other words, are we... What, before we get into what he has to say and what, he, what he's been investigating, I want to hear from you, Jim, what your take on this Wolfgang Helbig uh, is. Well, I think Wolf is uh, completely sincere, dedicated. He has an ideal background for the investigation of Sandy Hook. He is a former Florida State trooper. He spent 36 years in, uh, in school administration, including serving as vice principal and principal, and he's a recognized national school safety expert who has conducted symposia all over the country. Uh, in fact, it was his desire to learn what had happened at Sandy Hook so that he could explain to school districts around the country how they could avoid such a thing happening that drew him into Sandy Hook in the first place. And it was only after he had submitted a, a number of FOIA requests and made a number of phone calls, discovered his FOIA requests weren't being uh, answered, his phone calls weren't being returned, that he became troubled. And then when he was visited by two homicide detectives from uh, a local you know, police station, he lives in a gated community in Florida, who told him that they were there on behalf of the Connecticut State Police, who, as a warning to tell him that if he continued to ask questions about Sandy Hook, he would be prosecuted, that he became resolved to get to the bottom of this. All right. Now, in May of, of this year, uh, Wolfgang went down to uh, Newtown, uh, Connecticut, uh, to start poking around and, and to start asking questions. On his website, sandyhookjustice.com, he has this list of 16 questions that he says must be answered. And uh, so just give us a, a, a briefing as to uh, what happened when he went down to, to Newtown in May. Yes, and I published a couple of articles about this before and after that your audience may find worth checking out. One is entitled Wolfgang Halbig Heads for 
Newtown in pursuit of the truth about Sandy Hook. That was before the the trip there. And the second is entitled The Newtown School Board Meeting and the Meaning of Silence. And among the points I make in the earlier article about his anticipated trip is that we have multiple sources that raise questions about what we have been told about Sandy Hook, including a a New York City Gold Shield detective now retired, whom I happen to know personally, who said when I described about, you know, all these people being there, having name tags on lanyards, porta-potties, you know, a sign that says everyone must check in, whether he'd ever heard of such a thing at a crime scene, and and he thought it was really quite strange. Right. But before Uh, we get into that, Jimmy, just set the scene for us, how you were received, where you went, what sort of questions you were asking and what the response was when you were in Newtown? Well, we we stayed in uh, Danbury uh, and traveled over to Newtown, and the first place we went was to the United Way of Northwestern Connecticut, which has been one of the recipients of this rather large sum of money that's been contributed to the families that were allegedly involved, uh, where... It's a matter of law that they are required to share their documents and records with the public, and where, when we arrived on the scene, uh, Wolf was there with his attorney, Day Williams. He has a second attorney, uh, but Day Williams was with him there. And they called the Newtown police, and they had a seven or eight guys out there who were making it physically impossible for Wolf to gain access to the building. Uh, They said it was all online, but you see, that's not what the law states. The law states you should be able to have physical examination of the records, but they were obviously uh, going to do everything possible to prevent that. Uh, Wolf was even quoting the attorney general of the state of Connecticut explained how important it is that these these funds, these donations, be handled properly and in accordance with the law. And here, in my opinion, uh, they were violating that. I mean, it's just the opposite of what you would expect, Richard, if you thought that, uh, you know, they, they had nothing to hide. They should have welcomed Wolf said, and come on in, check our records. We'd like to know if we got anything wrong. You let us know. There have been in excess of $27 million donated here, and frankly, the whole thing is a scam, I'm convinced. And there are, you know, I've published not only a, published a dozen articles about this, but the evidence is growing more and more extensive and compelling as a student of the history of science. I mean, we're in a situation that's very typical in science. When you have a true theory, it spawns off a whole lot of additional research product. It has a research uh, projects. It has a, uh, a property known as fecundity by, you know, suggesting new ways to confirm and expand the research program. Well, we were looking at some of the consequences that, you know, should have been unproblematic if this was a real deal and finding nothing but stonewalling and resistance on every side. Well, let me ask you about this, Charity, because there were uh, rumors, and you can uh, shed some light on this, I'm sure, uh, that the, the website for this charity, and perhaps it, it wasn't the United Way, maybe it was other charities, maybe it was the United Way, supposedly someone captured, there was a screen capture, 
which proved that these websites were up and running prior to the Sandy Hook shooting. Yes, that does appear to be the case. You can find several websites online that discuss this. Also, that photographs of the alleged uh, victims, the children, were also available in online in advance. I mean, Richard, this is just one more indication the whole thing is a fraud. But, I mean, there's almost an endless number. I mean, it's, in my opinion, frankly, it's spinning completely out of control. And Wolf Halbig had a great deal to do with it. All right. So uh, take us back to Newtown then in May. And um, uh, Well, they had seven or eight, you know, police officers there. One guy was particularly adamant about not allowing Wolf access to the building. It was like they were trying to pick a fight, which wasn't, you know, Wolf's inclination whatsoever. I mean, here he is, a former Florida State trooper. He simply wanted to enter and review the documents and records in the position of the United Way, and they were refusing to let him do it. I thought that was very telling. Where else did you go? Where else? Then we went to the Newtown Police Department, because the top three officials of the department had been involved uh, in Sandy Hook, and Wolf wanted to speak with them. But while they were evidently in the building, and Wolf and Day and I went into the front office, the lobby of the police department, they sent out a sergeant who said they were unavailable, not that they weren't present, but that they were unavailable, which, again, I find rather incredible. I mean, here's a former Florida State trooper, you know, a former law enforcement officer himself, and they're refusing to meet with him. I thought that was, again, very striking. I mean, what you would have expected if this had all been on the up and up would have been a cordial reception. They would have invited Wolf and Day and me in, had us sit down in one of their offices and fielded any questions Wolf would have wanted to raise with them. But instead, it was precisely the opposite. All right, uh, Jim, stay put. We'll uh, take a time out, come back, and continue to talk about uh, your interesting little sojourn down to a new town, uh, Connecticut, site of the uh, Sandy Hook Elementary School uh, shooting or incident, uh, because, of course, there's some question as to exactly what went on. Was there, in fact, a shooting as far out as it may sound to some of my listeners? Jim Fetzer uh, went down to Newtown along with Wolfgang Halbig, and uh, we'll continue to delve into this uh, shocking investigation when the conspiracy show continues right after this. Uh, we are back with uh, Jim Fetzer, uh, who uh, traveled down to Newtown, Connecticut, with Wolfgang Helbig. And uh, uh, so you're at the police station, and the, several of the uh, the officers that were involved in the incident uh, refused to come out and, and speak with, with you and Wolfgang. Now, did they know ahead of time, did anyone know ahead of time that, that you were coming? Did Wolfgang send word out, we're going to be here on such and such a date, and we'd like to see, see so-and-so and talk about this? Yes, absolutely. In fact, I'd published that article about a month in advance of the actual trip. The article entitled, Wolfgang Halbig Heads for Newtown in Pursuit of the Truth About Sandy Hook. So they knew we were coming. And I think it's fairly obvious uh, that they took steps to thwart our inquiries and to be maximally uncooperative. I mean, uh, frankly, Richard, I was a bit taken aback that these people were not very skilled at deflecting an inquiry in a tactful and diplomatic fashion. They were so crude about it that it was obvious that this was, you know, they had a lot to hide. I mean, I had no doubt about it whatsoever. Did you talk to any of the, 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 the townspeople, just people happening by on the street? 
Well, we didn't see a lot of people happening by on the street. Newtown is a rather, uh, or Sandy Hook is a rather quaint community. It's fairly hilly, a lot of narrow, winding roads. There's a there's a stream that runs through the heart of the city. You don't see a lot of people out and about. It's a, a upscale community. Uh, they pay a great deal of attention to the maintenance, and I think that you know. Uh, we did not make specific efforts to talk with uh, members of the community, but there weren't a lot of members of the community available, and I am quite confident they would have been highly undisposed to speak with us about this. In fact, as I continue with our day, that became increasingly obvious. We went from the police department to have lunch, and it was a very nice place that was you know, in the vicinity of this stream I'm describing. And, and we also visited a soccer field there, uh, which was immaculately manicured. I mean, I can't tell you. These people care about appearances, which makes it all the more stunning that when we have looked at video taken of the Sandy Hook Elementary School, it's completely unkempt. It's very obvious it hasn't been maintained. The, the parking areas aren't properly demarcated to conform with Americans with Disability Act requirements. The signage is, is not uh, current. Uh, you look at the outside, it's not well kept. The playground equipment looks as though it's been in, in disuse for years and years. Uh, in fact, we have uh, you know studies using the Wayback Machine, getting no indication of computer activity at the school between 2008 and 2012. So spell it out. What's the suggestion there, uh, uh, Jim? The school appears to have been closed around 2008 and only reopened to be used as a prop for the this event to be staged in 2012. When you say the Wayback Machine checking computer activity at the school, explain. Well, the Wakeback machine is available on computers to go back and look at previously, you know, published pages, even if they're no longer available. You can go back, you know, if you know how to use the machine, you can go back and back and check any site for what it had published in the past and so forth. And in this case, uh, this study was done uh, of several schools in the vicinity and found indication of computer activity at every of the other schools except for Sandy Hook. And, and that complements what I'm describing now about the physical condition, the parking lot not ADA compliant, the playground equipment not having been used. This was an event that occurred in December, uh, and there should have been lots and lots of Christmas decorations, Hanukkah decorations on all the windows. I mean, it was an elementary school, a kindergarten through fourth grade school. But there's none of that uh, inside, uh, from video on the inside, too, the school, it just doesn't look right. There's a lot of stuff piled up in various positions. It looks as though the school was being used for storage. Uh, teachers who have viewed the footage have said that it appeared to them that that's exactly what was going on and that that's a typical practice with a school that's no longer in service. A plumber watching the footage noticed that a commode had been pulled out of one of the restrooms, but that it was just a gesture to try to make it look as though it was ADA compliant, which the plumber observed it was not. So, you know, I think the, 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 the physical features here are really quite stunning. 
and there's there's new evidence now from the uh, from the Lanza home, by the way, footage from inside Adam Lanza's home that shows everything is in place. I mean, all the books are on the shelves and everything. It doesn't look like anything is disrupted. Allegedly, the police had already come, and the early footage showed no police crime scene tape around the 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 home. That would occur later, but allegedly this was a scene where he had shot his mother. I'm telling you, Richard, there's no direction you can go in this thing that you don't get further confirmation that this was not a real event, then children did not, in fact, actually die at Sandy Hook. Uh, so so uh, back, to, back, yeah, yeah, back, back to lunch. Back to lunch. But at some point, I, I want to move a little bit further along in the day. Did, did you actually sit down with members of the, of the, uh, the Newtown school board? Well, I'll explain exactly how that happened, but we got an intervening event of considerable interest, All right. which is okay. this. We went from there to the fire station. Now, if you've ever recovered, you know, looked at the footage, actually all the activity was at the fire station, emergency vehicles, with the exception of one fire truck that was parked like halfway down the road, and it's about a quarter mile between the fire station and the school. But there were no emergency vehicles allowed down there, no surge of EMTs into the building. The the parents were not even allowed to identify their children. Instead, they were shown photographs. I mean, the, the whole thing is not right. Plus, you know, and this is something I explained when I spoke to the Sandy Hook School Board, where they gave each of us three minutes, Richard, three minutes to speak. I pointed out that uh, I had discovered that this school had 626 students enrolled, and if you subtract 20, there should have been around 600 that had to be evacuated. But you can study all the footage from Sandy Hook and Vane, and apart from one uh, photograph, there might be two, uh, that's been published as though it were a teacher leading students away from Sandy Hook. We have no indication of any students coming out of Sandy Hook. F- FEMA requires that there be an evacuation plan. It would have involved at least a dozen buses at 50 students per bus. None of that took place. And more recently now, we have a new study uh, published or included in my latest article about Sandy Hook, which is entitled, uh, Thinking About Sandy Hook, Was It Reality or an Illusion?, in which uh, the student who created this video noticed that the cars were parked in the wrong direction. In other words, if you come into the Sandy Hook parking lot, you'd have to pull around to the right and then turn back to the left in a lane, and then you'd pull your vehicle to the right facing the school or to the left facing away from the school. But the whole row of vehicles where they should be facing away from the school, they're all facing toward the school, which suggests that they just pulled these limousines, you know, these vehicles in, for their use as props without paying attention to the fact that they were pointed in the wrong direction. And that's important here because if you compare the photograph of the alleged teacher carrying the students away, the vehicles are pointed in the proper direction in that photograph, but they weren't in the proper direction on the scene at the day, which indicates that the photograph was taken on another occasion. I'm just telling you this whole thing reeks of flim flammery it's just a scam job richard the the school board uh uh meeting was this a regularly scheduled school board meeting that you attended yes they have a school board meeting once once a month and we attended the uh, the school board meeting yes in 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 may and i 
that, that, that one intervening event, by the way, at the firehouse was interesting because uh, there was one fireman there. Wolf wanted to speak to the fire chief because the fire chief, who happens to be EM, uh, EMT qualified, and his daughter, who was also a member, I mean, it's a volunteer fire department, his daughter was also a member there and also EMT qualified. They both rushed down to the school because it was so near at hand and were refused admittance. They weren't allowed into the school. And this is very odd. We have a sworn statement about it. So Wolf wanted to talk to him about it. There was only one fireman there on the scene. And when he figured out who we were, he became very hostile and, and angry. And while Wolf had already learned that the fire chief should be back in an hour, this guy was uh, very unhappy that we were there. So we went further down the road. Uh, there is a huge fence around the whole property where the school used to stand, and it's covered with a tarp to make it difficult for access, but a home right beside it was for sale. So we called and got permission to come on the property and looked over the hill in the back of the property, which was higher, and you could see where the school had stood. It had been raised. I mean, there was nothing but dirt. One little area had been sectioned off and surrounded with a mini fence inside that appears to be designated for a future memorial. We came back to the fire station and learned that the fire chief had come back to the station. But when Wilf went out to talk to him, this same fireman we'd encountered before got very hostile, belligerent, swore at Wolf repeatedly, actually shoved him which was, uh, you know, a very inadvisable thing to do. The fire chief would have talked to him. I mean, again, the total, the behavior was just totally inconsistent with this having been a real event where people didn't have anything to hide. Wolf got back in the vehicle, and we started talking about it. He said, I've had enough of this. So he called to the Newtown Police Department and made a complaint for an assault and battery, which I myself had witnessed. And they sent out uh, three different officers, one of whom was a sergeant we had met before at the Newtown Police Officer, uh, Police Department headquarters. And they took, they took my sworn statement, Wolf's sworn statement, and would you believe, Richard, we had the whole thing on tape, too. So they actually took a copy of the tape back to the station to, to watch and, and copy it. But we have all of that. Then we, we went to dinner and wound up at the Newtown School Board meeting. There were about eight other people who had joined us, knowing that we were going to be there. And when we came in to the meeting, we discovered a notice, a little, you know, mimeoed form that said, you're not allowed to ask questions directly to the school board, but if you write your question here, the school board will get back to you as appropriate. As I recall, the form didn't even have a place for your email address or what have you. I mean, it seemed to me to be purely ad hoc. So you weren't allowed to ask them questions, but you were allowed to speak for for about three minutes. That's exactly right. Okay, we're coming up on a break here, Jim. We've got about a minute and a half. Let's just uh, get into the conversation now. We'll finish, we'll, we'll continue after the break, but so, so who stood first, you or or, or Wolfgang? So Wolf, Wolf spoke first for three minutes, and then I spoke and used I don't know two and a half. But you can find the whole thing as well as the presentations of the other speakers if you go to the uh, the article I subsequently published entitled "The Newtown School Board Meeting and the Meaning of Silence," because that was the reception we got—total silence. 
But it's very curious that one of the trustees of Newtown who was present there, a very prominent woman, who one would presume wasn't normally there, and even more strikingly, I learned afterwards from Wolf and Day that the attorney general of the state had been present at that particular school board meeting. My, my, my. That's interesting. Yes. And... um these other eight individuals. Well, listen, we'll, 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 uh, we'll find out who they were as well on the other side. Jim Fetzer, uh, my guest, and we are discussing. It's an uncomfortable topic. 18 months after the Sandy Hook Elementary uh, shooting. I have to put that, ter- that, that word now in quotes because the question out there, again, as uncomfortable as it may, it, it may be, is whether or not there was, in fact, a shooting. Was this simply a staged event? Jim Fetzer says so. He was down in Newtown with Wolfgang Helbig. We'll continue this discussion on the other side, The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. We are back with uh, Jim Fetzer, uh, who's here. Uh, He was down in Newtown, uh, Connecticut, back in May with Wolfgang Helbig, uh, who has a website entitled sandyhookjustice.com. And uh, we're not going to get to all these 16 questions that demand the truth, obviously. And some of them are, are very sort of obscure questions involving, you know, porta-potties and things like that. But let's just get back to this, this school board meeting. There were eight others. Uh, now, were these eight other individuals simpatico with with you and Wolfgang, or were they there to shout you down, or who were these other eight people? Well, they weren't there to oppose us, but they did represent, you know, their own independent point of view. One, I think, his name was Dan Muldina, as I recall, who was actually associated with InfoWars, and Alex Jones, he was there. Right. And after the meeting, did an interview with Wolf that I thought was a perfectly good interview, uh, there were others who represented themselves, uh, one of whom, as I recall, is Michelle Murphy, who is talking about the role of mental health issues in all of this. But the final speaker, after we had spoken, appears to have been a designated hitter who came out and just said how outrageous it was that we were there speaking to the school about board about this event where obviously the community had responded heroically and we were clearly, you know, uh, being abusive by even making this appearance. Um, and this this fellow, it seemed to me, was clearly, you know, set up so that they would end on what they might regard as a high note. All right, so I, so just summarize Wolfgang's presentation to the board, if you could. What, 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 what did he say? Well, Wolfgang was explaining that, you know, he wasn't uh, hostile here. He was explaining that he was a school safety expert and that he wanted to know what had happened in order to explain to other school districts how they could avoid it. And he talked about how he had been frustrated in his FOIA request, how his phone calls were going unanswered, and uh, that you know he'd even received a threat about all of this. He didn't uh, raise all of the questions which had previously been submitted to them in FOIA requests, by the way. But he did say how, you know, he wasn't here to be accusatory. He was here to find out what happened uh, so that whatever had happened uh, could be shared to the benefit of other school districts. When I spoke following him, uh, I began by explaining some of the reasons we were there. 
including that the final reports about Sandy Hook from the Connecticut state authorities do not include the names, the ages, or the sex of any of the victims. Uh, Richard, that's very, very odd. You're going to toil in vain trying to find other crimes that have been committed and reported in the news uh, where the reports uh, don't even include the name, the ages, or the sex of the purported victims. I mentioned that the Attorney General of the State had opposed the release of the 911 calls. Uh, at the time, I was unaware that he was sitting right there. But that is certainly a peculiar stance for him to have adopted. I pointed out that the clerk of Newtown had entered into secret negotiations with the state legislature to avoid releasing death certificates on the students. Again, very, very peculiar. And that all of those who had been involved in the demolition of the building had been required to take lifetime gag orders to be unable to address anything they saw or did not see. And I think what they did not see is probably more important than anything they saw, that they did not see any bullet holes in the sides of the walls or any bloodstains on the floors. And, and how were you able to, to ascertain that these employees who raised the school had to take these lifetime gag orders? How did that oh, come that's about? A, all, everything I'm telling you is e e available in the public domain, Richard. I don't make anything up. If you look at my articles, they're all, you know, I give sources, links all over the place. But I'm telling you, that's no secret. Yeah, let, let me just throw this out very, very briefly, and we can address it again on the other side. Coming up, this is a short segment. Uh, th these rumors, well, I call them rumors. Maybe they can be substantiated. There, there have been people who have been trying to, to find the names of the victims on the Social Security Death Index and have been unsuccessful. Now, what, what can you tell me about that very briefly? Well, that does uh, indeed appear to be the case, but even more fascinating in many ways is the fact that uh, someone has sought to discover the birth records for the decedents and cannot find birth records for any of these people. Richard, that's included right in my latest article about uh, thinking about Sandy Hook. Was it reality or an illusion? Which I recommend everyone listening to the show should watch. There's an, another video I'm going to talk about after the break. But this is particularly stunning because here you'll see the records where he goes through all the names and tries to find if they were born in Connecticut or anywhere else he's got a lead on, and he can't find birth records for a single one of them, Richard, does not this, one. Does this include the adults that were, the, the, the teachers that were also supposedly victims? You know, I don't know if he did a search on the teachers, but I'll say one thing. There actually should have been about 75 staff members in that building, secretaries, custodians, those who ran the cafeteria and all that. No one talks about that. But not only do we have 600 missing children who should have been there streaming out of the school and, and evacuated, but there's another 75 adults that we've never heard a peep about. Most people aren't even aware ought to have been present as well. All right, Jim, stay put back. More on the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting 18 months later with Jim Fetzer. Richard Serrett, The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. The truth will set you free, but first it will really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740.
And we are back with uh, Jim Fetzer. Uh, Jim, let's just uh, talk about some of the the 16 questions that appear on Wolfgang's website, sandyhookjustice.com. And, and uh, number one, who directed the New Haven FBI field office to classify the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting? Now, uh, what do we mean by classify the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting? Well, Wolfgang, who was uh, an expert witness in, in relation to Columbine, because he has such an extensive background with regard to school uh, shooting incidents and so forth, was dumbfounded to discover that the FBI report, which Barack Obama had commissioned, you may recall that when this happened, Barack Obama said he was going to use the full resources of the government to find out what happened, have been classified, that it's not available to the public. Wolf was very specific, called the FBI office, and they even taunted him and said, uh, no luck, you're not going to see this in your lifetime. And it was really as though it were an adversarial relationship. And when they finally released it, and I've included that in one of my articles about this, it was so massively redacted. I mean, it had more holes than a chunk of Swiss cheese. I mean, it's ridiculous, Richard. You really need to look at some of the, you know these articles and some of the evidence here to realize how overwhelming it is that there's a massive effort to conceal what actually happened there, and for the good reason that it's nothing remotely like what we've been told. In fact, I'm completely convinced it was a total scam, and that Eric Holder played a key role in all of this. The day of the shooting, the governor, whose name is Malloy, and the lieutenant governor, who was in his company, held a press conference, and he explained that they had been spoken to that something like this might happen. And I began asking myself, something like this? What could he possibly mean? There are only two alternatives. One, that there was going to be a shooting at a school in Connecticut, and a lot of children were going to be killed, in which case, if he had been spoken to, we ought to have taken steps to alert the school districts in the state to take precautions and enhance security to ensure it did not happen which he did not do, or alternatively, he had been told, spoken to, that they were going to take an abandoned school and they were going to conduct a drill and then they were going to present it as a real event to promote uh, an aggressive gun control agenda, which is exactly what happened. So I began to ponder by whom he would have been spoken to, and it turns out that less than a month before Sandy Hook, Eric Holder made a visit to the governor and appears to have been the one who spoke to him about this. Eric Holder is a longtime advocate of gun control, extreme gun control measures in this country. It's referred to as Project Longevity. In one of my articles here, uh, top ten... You know, my, my uh, Sandy Hook, my pick of the top ten uh, articles, uh, videos, interviews, I begin with a, a presentation by Eric Holder to a Democratic Women's Conference in 1995, and he's going so far as to explain how they have to change people's attitude and brainwash, this is his word, yes. not mine, yes. brainwash the public into adopting a different view of all of this. It's apparent to me, Richard, that this goes all the way to the top, that Barack Obama, Eric Holder, the governor of the state, 
the Connecticut State Police, the Newtown Police Department, the Newtown School Board, and others involved at the periphery were all complicit in this huge scam to deceive the American public. Well, here's the question that always arises, Jim. You've heard it a million times. Whenever we're talking about whether it's JFK, whether we're talking about 9-11, or whether we're talking about a drill at a school that was presented as an actual shooting incident to further an anti-gun agenda, how do you keep the lid on something like this if there were so many people involved? Well, they're all going to benefit. Uh, you have no idea how much money has come out of this, Richard. Uh, the, the governor, the, the government, the U.S. government gave him, oh, I don't know, $11 million to rebuild the school. Get this, between the shooting and the demolition of the structure, the Newtown B, which also was complicit. I have an article entitled, The uh, Newtown School Board, the Newtown B, were complicit in Sandy Hook. You, you, your listeners ought to look at that, too. Uh, published an article saying how it would be difficult to refurbish the school because it was loaded with asbestos and other biohazards, which led me during my presentation to the school board not only to observe what happened to the 600 other students, but to ask is that since the Newtown V had published, the school was loaded with asbestos and other biohazards, when were the parents of these children notified that they were going to school in a toxic waste dump? And just as in the case of Wolfgang, he's got no answers, I have got no answers, and it's because the answers would reveal the hoax. Uh, talk to me very briefly about these Life Star helicopters that are normally deployed whenever there's any sort of serious uh, I- injury in, in, a, in, a, in an incident like this. Life Star helicopters were not requested at this, uh, at, at this uh, shooting incident. That's right, and Wolf went so far as to verify that, because normally these medevac helicopters are, are brought in even for drills, Richard. So here he got a real event, and they weren't brought in. Wolf actually called the company and spoke with the owner, and they explained that they'd been sitting there waiting for the call to come, but it never came. Ironically, Wolf has a photograph taken from a helicopter, which appears to have been a Connecticut State Police helicopter, uh, uh, down from the helicopter onto the ground, and the time you can discern from the shadows was 9.15. Well, what's fascinating about that is that's 20 minutes before the first 9-11 call came in at 9.35. Interesting. Who declared uh, initially there were 18 children? and six school staff members that were, were declared legally dead. But they were, they were declared dead within eight minutes. Now, is that within the first eight minutes of, the, of, the, of receiving the 911 call? Uh, it would have been in that approximate interval of time. I mean, it's bizarre because the EMTs hadn't, you know, there were not even any EMTs. There should have been a surge of EMTs. There should have been a whole lot of emergency vehicles rushing these little bodies off to hospitals. Uh, EMTs aren't permitted, actually, to declare people dead and alive unless the head is actually, say, decapitated from the body. This was not done. The claim was made that two of them were sent off, but it's all very mysterious and difficult to get any information. And as I may have already mentioned, not even the parents were allowed to identify their children. Not even the parents were allowed into the school. And, and it appears increasingly it's because the, the, the children who are allegedly dead were actually fabrications. I mean, we not only don't have death certificates, 
with uh, one possible exception. There's the Posner family that claims to have documents on Noah Posner, one of the alleged dead, and someone is calling around and identifying himself as Lenny Posner, who is supposed to be the boy's father. But Kelly from Tulsa, who is a member of a research group in which I have participated, has spent over eight hours talking with this uh, Lenny Posner. She's convinced that he is playing a role, that what he's saying is is uh, being made up, and that he's not even the child's father, but actually his grandfather. And I'll tell you, Kelly is nobody's fool. She is one of those who has made a lot of phone calls about this. For example, she, she works in a business where they have to dispose of biohazards and so forth, and she was aware that if there was blood in the building, there were very formal procedures that had to be taken in order to clean it up. So she began making phone calls about, you know, who had cleaned up the blood. And she was eventually directed to Lieutenant Vance, who was the head of the Connecticut State Police, who that very day was already threatening anyone who challenged the official account of Sandy Hook with prosecution. And when she asked him who cleaned up the blood, Lieutenant Vance replied, what blood? What blood? Yes. What blood? What skull fragments? What brain tissue? What, what... I'm telling you, you, there's nowhere you can go in this that doesn't lead you to further confirmation that this was a huge scam. And that's where I want to bring in, too, that Wolf is not the only national safety, school safety expert who has confirmed what happened here. There's a fellow by the name of Paul Preston, and I did an interview, uh, an interview was done with him by another member of this research group in which I participated, Sophia Smallstorm, who's also conducted a, put together an hour and a half documentary entitled uh, uh, Unraveling Sandy Hook that I highly recommend. But she interviewed Paul Preston on a radio show she's now doing, and during the second half hour, they got into Sandy Andy Hook, and this guy who's got like 40 years of experience, who's supervised these kinds of drills before, who knows it inside out, said once he began looking at the footage from Sandy Hook, it just didn't add up. There was no intensity, no sense of urgency. People were very casual. There was no rush of EMTs into the building. He said, where are the students? There should have been hundreds of students pouring out that needed to be evacuated. I mean, you would just go right down the line. What I did was to have that second half hour training. So if you go to this article entitled Sandy Hook Redux, Obama officials confirm that it was a drill and no children died because Paul Preston, given his long contacts in the, with the Department of Education, knows lots of people who work for Obama. He contacted them to discuss all of this because he was so upset about what appeared to him to be a drill. Everyone he contacted confirmed it had been a drill, that no children had died, and it was done to promote a, an aggressive gun control agenda. This is conf- being confirmed off the record, obviously. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, okay. they're at risk of their job. Sure. Right? And he, he said they told him more, but he's not at liberty to say the more that they told him. But I'm telling you, this guy is completely convincing. I've included the interview there. Go to Sandy Hook Redux. This has been one of the most widely shared articles ever published on Sandy Hook. It's had, uh, oh, I don't know, by now, maybe up to 2,000 reads right on Veterans Today, and it's been shared by about 1,500, you know, 1,500 different sites. I mean, it's all over the place. But if you go to, to the original, Sandy Hook Redux, right. 
Obama officials confirm that it was a drill and no children died. You can hear him talk about the evidence, and I have the transcript there. And what I did, Richard, was to put in video footage and photographs that he is talking about as he goes through. So you can verify for yourself what he's saying. This is absolutely smashing stuff. I'm telling you, absolutely pure spun dynamite. We got about we got less than 30 seconds. What of what of Adam Lanza then? Who was he? Was he a real person? Well, if you look into Adam Lanza, and that's also discussed in this latest article, thinking about Sandy Hook, it looks as though he's a fabrication. I mean, even the face, the photographs don't look real. They look as though they took a skull and then lightly painted it up to make it look as though, you know, it was somehow haunting. The whole story about his doing the shooting is a fabrication. I'm a former Marine Corps officer, used to supervise recruit training. Two other experts on marksmanship have also confirmed it's a preposterous story they tell about him shooting all these kids with this incredible ratio of kills to targets. Okay, you know what? We need to do a part two on this, and we shall, if you're good for that, Jim. Absolutely, Richard. All right, Jim, thanks for your time, and uh, listen, if you can uh, convince Wolfgang to come on, we had him lined up, and he he stiffed me twice. I'm not sure why, whether he's nervous, but uh, I would love to have him on with you. Well, I think Wolf has just been so badgered. So many people have been beating up on him. He actually had a Facebook site, and the Facebook trolls have come out in force for this last article of mine. I mean, it's he, he's just tired of putting up with it. So he took down his Facebook site, and he still maintains the site you're talking about, SandyHookJustice.com. He's in it for the long haul, and I'm right there with him. All right. Well, tell him he'll have, uh, obviously, a fair, uh, you know, uh, a fair treatment on this program. Jim, thanks okay. again. You got it, Richard. Bye-bye. Well, there you go. Make of that what you will. Uh, please visit the website, richardserrett.com, register and become a member, receive my newsletter, The Dead Drop, for free, and of course, say hello on Twitter, at Richard Serrett. And as always, follow the truth. Hey, thanks for inviting me into your home. How goes your summer thus far? I'm not sure what the weather's like where you are, uh, but here but here in these parts, uh, southern Ontario, we have had some really cool weather in mid-July. At night, it gets down to about 13, 14 degrees Celsius, which is about, what, 60, 62 Fahrenheit, mid-July. It's great weather for sleeping with the windows open, but not really beach weather. Uh, however, the mighty Aphrodite and I did take the boys to the beach yesterday, out in the east end of Toronto. Those of you who, uh, who live in the area, Scarborough, will be familiar with Bluffers Park Beach which is a beautiful sandy beach on the shores of Lake Rio. And there was a green flag uh, flying on the lifeguard stand, which meant that the water quality was very good. And it was reasonably hot yesterday. Uh, in fact, the sand was, was so hot, it was a little uncomfortable walking around in bare feet. Uh, the boys brought their, their metal detectors, and they found some bottle caps, and they played badminton. And then uh, we got hot, so it got time to, uh, to dip our toe into the lake, and were we in for a shock? My word, it was icy. The water was frigid. It had to be f- maybe 50, 55 degrees tops in mid-July. Uh, and and it was so cold, and we could only wade up to our knees and stay in for about a minute. It was so cold, the the, uh, the cold water began to constrict the blood vessels in our legs. And it's it's painful. So we had to get out. I don't know what's going on this summer. It's just crazy weather. The other thing that uh, that uh, the mighty Aphrodite and I are doing uh, this summer is 
were sort of engaged in a battle for the boys' hearts and minds, musically speaking. Uh, she's introducing her music to them. Her new She likes new music. She's new school. Katy Perry and Beyonce and all the other, other uh, uh, bands. I call her music an awful racket, and she feels the same way about me, but I'm, I'm old school. I like classic rock, so I'm introducing the boys to the pantheon of classic rock, the Beatles and the Stones and the Who and the Doors and the Grateful Dead and Bob Dylan and so forth. And I think I'm winning. <laughs> Don't tell her that. Um, but the other, the, this is where it gets interesting because this is where the two worlds collide, the world of rock and roll and uh, what I do for a living, and that's covering sort of the UFO, ET, paranormal beat. Uh, and that's where we're going over the next uh, 45 minutes because um, my next guest has actually uh, written, uh, the book came out a few years ago. Uh, I've just sort of discovered it recently, but it's a book that sort of combines the world of rock and the world of UFOs. It's called Alien Rock, The Rock and Roll Extraterrestrial Connection. And as it turns out, there are hundreds of rock stars who believe in UFOs, and some have actually had some kind of an experience, including several notable Musicians who claim to have had alien abduction uh, experiences, including Ace Frehley of Kiss and Cat Stevens and uh, Sammy Hagar, formerly of Van Halen. And of course, uh, John Lennon had a number of uh, uh, noted UFO experiences. And we'll get into all of that, as I say, with my next guest. Michael Luckman is the author of Alien Rock, The Rock and Roll Extraterrestrial Connection. He's also director of the New York Center for Extraterrestrial Research and the founder of the Cosmic Majority. What is the Cosmic Majority? Well, they're an organization that seeks to advance the views of the majority of people living on planet Earth who believe in UFOs, life on other planets throughout the universe, the paranormal, the new age, and the sanctity of the environment. And, this is interesting, he taught the nation's first college course on rock music at the New School for Social Research in New York City back in 1971. Michael Luckman, how are you? I'm doing real well, Richard. Thanks for inviting me into the show. Alien Rock, the rock and roll extraterrestrial connection. Now, uh, I remember reading a, a, a headline about a, a United Nations report that said something like 150 million people, or there have been 150 million sightings of UFOs since 1947. So I suppose, you know, people in the rock business shouldn't be any different than the general public. Uh, but, but I guess what I would be curious to know is, are they more or less inclined to talk about it? Well, generally, I would say it, it depends. I would say that uh, uh, up until uh, at the time when I wrote the, uh, the book, uh, the book uh, came out several years ago. When I wrote the book, uh, at that time, it was hard to get them to go on the record, and uh, a lot of the uh, information came uh, uh, through their uh, uh, friends and associates and uh, former wives and things like that. Uh, but now uh, there's a tremendous opening up. I mean, uh, there, I, I'm, on the new book that I'm working on is a sequel, Alien Rock, uh, which also include Hollywood celebrities. Uh, there are hundreds of people, at least hundreds of people, who are going to be presented in their various uh, experiences and stories uh, having to do with uh, everything from out-of-body experiences, not just UFOs, but out-of-body experiences and, uh, and uh, uh, what's happened when they've uh, uh, messed with a Ouija board and all kinds of interesting uh, things, people like uh, 
Larry King, who's interested, who's, who's, is greatly afraid of dying, like Michael Jackson, and he wants to have himself uh, cryogenically suspended. Uh, so, you know, there are all kinds of, 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 of people who are out there who are famous who have now come forward with all kinds of amazing stories. And uh, the reason I think so many of the rock stars in particular have had these experiences is, number one, they're out on the road late at night as far as UFO stuff, and they, have, they do a lot of traveling. They have an opportunity to see all kinds of things. Uh, but also, uh, as, it, as I recently learned, there are findings from a, a study that was done by a team of Belgian University um, uh, scientists, and it found that creative people's brains are actually wired different from the rest of the population. So that would explain to me why extraterrestrials would be particularly interested in, uh, in rock stores. Right. Well, that, that's an interesting point. Their brains are wired differently. And you make that point, especially about uh, John Lennon. And I wanted to begin uh, with the former Beatle mm -hmm. uh, because he, he um, attributes the name of the Beatles uh, going back, I think, to the time he was like 12 years old. And this vision, or may, it may not have been a vision, it may have been a, a close encounter, uh, but he attributes the name Beatles coming from these men flying aboard this flaming pie. Yes. Tell, tell us about that story. Well, I, I think you sort of summarized it. I mean, uh, there's not that much more to that story, except that it's a very uh, interesting. Uh, John was, like, really into this stuff. Uh, he, For example, he identified very much with uh, UFO uh, abductees. Uh, he said that he felt very different, and for all he knew, he might be an abductee. Uh, he certainly had an up-close and personal uh, experience that happened uh, when he was living with uh, Mei Pang, who I've spoken to extensively on this, uh, his former girlfriend when he was living apart from, uh, from Yoko. And uh, uh, this, this was a craft that was hovering above the roof of, of the apartment building they were living in on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, and it was a cone-shaped object, maybe a couple hundred feet across, and it had circular lights all around the rim and a red light on top. And there were other people too who had called, who had seen, who had called the police and called the newspapers, who had seen something. Uh, uh, but he was so close to it. I mean, he said that he could have hit it with a stone. I mean, he said it was maybe, you know, a couple hundred feet away. And it really got his, you know, juices going. Uh, and, uh, you know, he mentioned it on a couple of albums, and uh, he's very, very much into it. He's not the only Beatle, by the way. He sort of had some kind of, it was, it certainly if you include paranormal experiences, he's not, he's not the only Beatle. Uh, uh, but uh, there are so many uh, of these rock stars who have had uh, amazing things happen. When I first started out, I was concerned that, you know, maybe I would have be dealing mostly with, people who, you know, rock stars who perhaps believe in these things, but not necessarily had these experiences. But they have had these experiences uh, big time. Uh, Elvis, uh, probably more than, um, than any other. Uh, uh, yeah, I definitely want to get to Elvis's uh, yeah. sightings. I mean, that starts uh, going back to the, the night of his birth. But if I could just stick with Lennon uh, for a few more sure. moments, because there's, you mentioned the May Pang incident, which, I ha which uh, happened yeah. uh, when he was living uh, apart from Yoko. But was there not another incident at the Dakota? Well, yes, there, there was supposedly an incident, but I uh, uh, investigated that, 
and unfortunately, or fortunately, depending how you might look at it, it's it, it, that does not hold water at all. That case, uh, that all comes from uh, Yuri Geller, right? Uh, the British-based uh, uh, psychic, who's world-renowned, and I believe that he has some legitimate and significant psychic powers. But he's also a showman, and and, and I, I've, my investigation, I'm 100% certain that uh, this was a made-up uh, story. And the reason I say that is that there was the, the he claimed that, uh, just briefly, the story goes like this, uh, 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 four uh, spindly uh, uh, gray uh, little uh, alien beings uh, uh, come into uh, John's apartment while Yoko's asleep, and uh, one of the things that I just, you know, that bothers me about the story is that the original version of the story, which Yuri Geller uh, uh, printed in his, uh, published in his Encounters magazine, Yuri Geller's Encounters, it was called, many, many, many years ago. Uh, that tells one story, and then he changed the story so that here these friendly, outwardly friendly aliens uh, morphed into, in his later telling of the story, morphed into... Uh, these um, uh, kind of, uh, you know, irascible types, like a little bit on the nasty side perhaps, and and uh, that uh, would be all well and good, except that they're two totally divergent uh, 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 stories. Uh, moreover, uh, Yuri made a big deal of this. He held up this, uh, for the uh, newspapers, uh, he held up this uh, small uh, uh uh, egg-shaped object that he claimed was given to him by John just a few weeks before John's assassination uh, that John said he was given by the alien for one of the aliens for what purpose he didn't know. And uh, uh, so Yuri held it up. The only problem is is that that, uh, that little egg uh, has been known for years uh, and available uh, from a Dutch uh, manufacturing company. I have the name of the company. Uh, it's a metallic egg, and it can be stood on end, and it's maybe about an inch or a little more than an inch, inch and a half tall, and it can be purchased for about $25. Uh, and also, uh, Yuri uh, to- uh, was with uh, a record uh, uh, executive in, uh, uh, in England, and they were out on, a, uh, on the River of Thames, and uh, they... Uh, and he showed him these two so-called alien eggs. So there were two. But then when he released the story, and ever since, he's only spoken about one. Ah, well, I guess that's not what Lennon was referring to on the Magical Mystery Tour album when he said, I am the Eggman. No. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll take a time out. Michael Luckman is with us, author of Alien Rock, the rock and roll extraterrestrial connection right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. And we are back with Michael Luckman. He's the director of the New York Center for Extraterrestrial Research, founder of the Cosmic Majority, and author of Alien Rock, the Rock and Roll Extraterrestrial Connection. He has a sequel coming uh, uh, out on uh, the same uh, subject, which will also include uh, Hollywood stars and other celebrities. And they're... uh, UFO and paranormal encounters. Back to Lenin, uh, just before, because there's, this is such a rich mind to be veined, uh, or a rich vein to be mined, rather, with, with, yes. with Lenin. Uh, and it's um, interesting because uh, we mentioned the flaming pie yes. uh, and uh, the, the, these uh, 
individuals on this flaming pie told Lennon, you will be known as the Beatles, spelled with an A and so forth. But then along comes uh, Paul McCartney's solo album, a pretty fine album back in the late 90s, called Flaming Pie. Yes. Um, now, what, what, what do you think? He was, was he trying to sort of corroborate Lennon's story, sort of wink, yeah, wink, I, I, just have, I, I really don't have any, uh, any, any idea on that. Uh, but uh, what's interesting about Paul is that uh, uh, Paul, uh, uh, to this day, doesn't read or write music. Um, and uh, he also... Uh, uh, commenting on the success of the book of the I'm sorry the success of the band uh, said that they always felt that there was this uh, uh, I forget the exact uh, something, along, something along the lines of an invisible uh, star but it wasn't the word invisible it was something else but uh, but but anyway uh, uh, some kind of a, a star was uh, out in front uh, that was signifying to them that they would, in the end, be successful. Hmm. And, and, oh, I know. He, it was, he called it a blind, a, a, a blind uh, Bethlehem store. Ah, interesting. And, and you've, you've also talked about how, how Lennon felt, and Yoko has, has echoed this sentiment, that the Beatles felt that they were mere conduits, that they were sort of these... Um, channels. Channels. Yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, and this is something that, you know... The, the bottom line, it uh, the the question ultimately becomes uh, this sort of a funny thing. But you know, are, are how many of the top ten songs at any given time have been written uh, written uh, with extraterrestrial or interdimensional assistance? Uh, I would say quite a number, which raises the interesting question: of maybe the royalty checks are going to the wrong place. <laughs> Or maybe, you know, George Martin is not of this earth. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, but um, in further to that, though, you, you make a, an interesting uh, argument that Lennon's murder, murderer, Mark David Chapman, uh, may have been under the influence of some dark alien forces. Yeah, and we're not necessarily... <clears throat> well, I mean, I'm not talking... We're not talking about, you know, Little Green Men or anything like that, but... You know, I think that we, you know, we, we clearly, there are so many dimensions that we're, we just don't know about at all. And each planet, from one planet to another in our solar system alone, uh, the physics are entirely different. And there are all sorts of surprises that we're finding all the time. So I would say that, you know, whether, whatever you call it, I call, I call in my book, extra, I call in the term extraterrestrial musical forces. But they could be interdimensional. They could be extraterrestrial. Uh, they, you know, they could, they, if you want to look at it as spirits, you know, they could be negative or positive. Right. I, I think John was, was clearly in touch with, with positive uh, entities. He spoke about his muse, and that even at a time after he, uh, there was a period in his life where his muse allegedly disappeared, and he referred to the muse, by the way, as a female, but he never gave her name, was concerned that somebody else might get in touch with the muse somehow. <laughs> And so John was, in was you know, getting, uh, getting uh, entire songs in his head uh, written automatically, and all he had to do, but he had to do it very fast, is to write it down. This is a phenomenon that's talked about over and over and over again. Uh, I know uh, a, uh, a musician, uh, he's a surf guitar pioneer by the name of Merle Fankhauser. He was at Harry Nielsen's uh, home in the early 70s in uh uh, in Los Angeles, and John happened to be there, 
And John brought it up. He says that he has this, you know, automatic writing or channeling thing happening. And then Neoko, of course, later on in an interview in Playboy magazine corroborated this. But so many musicians have this. Mm. And, it, and it even goes to the point that some of them feel guilty, actually, that they're being, including, by the way, Michael Jackson, I believe, uh, that they're being um, credited for things that they don't feel that they wrote. Interesting, interesting. Well, uh, another Beatle, uh, Ringo Starr. Uh, interesting, his, 19, I think it was a 1974 album, Goodnight Vienna, the, the, yeah. the title track was written by John Lennon, and the cover art, uh, tell us about the cover art of that album, because it's from a pretty famous UFO movie. Yeah, yeah, well, it's from the Daily Earth, so still, now, it, 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 it turns out, however, uh, that that uh, it wasn't meant to, uh, um, it was just sort of a uh, fun thing that Ringo did. It didn't necessarily signal his extraterrestrial interest, although I found that out, too, that he certainly uh, believes, uh, has a healthy interest in it and believes that, uh, uh, that uh, you know, that there's a government cover-up and things like that. Uh, but the, for that album, uh, it was they, they filmed the video for that on the uh, roof of the uh, Capitol Records building in Los Angeles. And uh, they had a space, a spaceship, a flying saucer, and there was Ringo, you know, dressed up as the alien uh, visitor, Michael Rennie. And, uh, you know, uh, the album did well. Michael Luckman is with us, author of Alien Rock, The Rock and Roll Extraterrestrial Connection. And again, he's the director of the New York Center for Extraterrestrial Research, founder of the Cosmic uh, Majority. Um, let's talk now a, a little bit about uh, the king, Elvis Presley. Uh, and the night of his birth, what what uh, reportedly happened, and, and where does this information come from? Well, the uh, what happened was, uh, according to Vernon Presley, uh, uh, Elvis is dead. Uh, a uh, a strange blue light was present over the two room, tiny two room shack in Tupelo, Mississippi, at the time when Elvis was born. And by the way, when he was born. There, there were twins. That's right. And uh, uh, Jesse Garin, uh, who was buried in the meditation uh, garden at uh, Roseland, uh, alongside of Elvis, was there. And Elvis always felt a special connection, even some guilt, uh, but a special connection with uh, with his, uh, you know, stillborn uh, uh, twin. And uh, anyhow, the blue light was seen by uh, the attendant, by the uh, local physician. And Vernon told uh, this uh, story, um, he's told it many, he had told it, he's passed on now, but he told it many times. He told it to uh, not only the Elvis later, who was very, very uh, intrigued by it, but he also told it to my friend uh, uh, Larry Geller, who was, uh, was Elvis's uh, hairstylist and also his uh, new age advisor. And uh, Elvis, like, really got deeply, I mean, the real Elvis, got very deeply into uh, several hundred books uh, on spirituality and UFOs and all kinds of New Age subjects uh, that Larry put together. When Elvis would travel somewhere, he would take many of the books with him in these special cases. And uh, he really wanted to, uh, he, he felt that, that these uh, movies that he was doing, uh, where they were grinding out these, uh, these movies, he, he said that he got physically he felt almost physically ill for making some of those movies, and he really wanted to get out out of the, the trap that he was in, which was basically that that he and the people around him 
were all getting these prescription drugs. And, uh, you know, the pressures, of course, are, are unbelievable when you get into a position like that, all kinds of pressures. And um, there was uh, his uh, manager, Tom, uh, uh, Colonel Tom Parker, was very, very upset with Elvis. He was afraid, actually he was upset with Larry because he was afraid that Larry Geller would, you know, take Elvis away from his, what he considered to be his, his main business. Sure. I mean, there's an argument to be made that, that uh, uh, Colonel Tom Parker, who was a bit of a gambler, had amassed so much uh, gambling debt that uh, essentially Elvis uh, was, in, was enslaved to Parker to pay off those debts. Yeah, maybe. Actually, what Elvis wanted to do, Larry was uh, Larry's uh, very good with uh, natural foods and stuff. And obviously Elvis was, was, in fact, he had stomach cancer. He had a lot of problems with the way that he ate and uh, put on a lot of weight and all that. So uh, Elvis, Larry was going to take El, go with Elvis down to uh, Hawaii, uh, dry him out, get him away from the dependency on the pills, give him a decent health regimen, get him you know on a healthier diet. And then Elvis wanted to go to the Middle East and use his, 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 his um, singing uh, to be a uh, basically like a musical, a musical messiah. Of course, he never got there. No, no. Uh, let's uh, let's talk about some of uh, Elvis's reported UFO sightings, both in Graceland and out in the desert. Yes, there was an incident in the desert where actually there was a there were several incidents that took place. One outside a recording studio in. Uh, Los Angeles, another one in the uh, Nevada desert. In the Nevada desert, the uh, the hair on the back of their uh, heads, uh, the witnesses and, El- and Elvis too, uh, you know, uh, uh, sort of stood up and they felt like this odd sensation, and they saw a mothership, what what sounded like a mothership, something big, uh, in the desert, and uh, and and at one point there was another one over his. Um, Home in uh, Bel Air, where they were looking, where, where uh, they were looking for Elvis, and Elvis was outside, but not where they thought he would be. And they and they saw something, and they thought that Elvis might have been abducted. Oh dear! And uh, also at Graceland, he, uh... and at Graceland, they have been seen at Graceland even more recently. But Larry, I believe, was there and witnessed a, a UFO together with Vernon and Elvis. Uh, once while I was sitting there out, outdoors at Graceland. We've uh, just got a couple minutes here before we, we break away again, but let's uh, at least begin the, uh, the discussion um, concerning Michael Jackson. You mentioned that uh, he, he may be one example of, uh, of a musical artist who was influenced uh, or perhaps a, um, a channel for um, uh, you know, messages yeah. from aliens. Did he talk... Did he talk about? I mean, if there's one person we we might assume or guess might talk openly about uh, encounters with UFOs, it would be someone like a Michael Jackson. Well, yeah, you know, I met Michael in New York uh, at the time, uh, right before I uh, I wrote my book, and he was at a place called the Abracadabra, uh, basically a magic shop, a big one uh, in uh, in uh, downtown Manhattan. Uh, and I asked the owner, I said, well, where's Michael? Because he had called me and he told me that Michael was up there and I had to take a cab to go up there. And I was afraid by the time I got up there, he would be gone. But he no, he was there because it was a rainy day and there were almost no customers in the store. And he walked in, Michael was in there and he, I said, where is he? He says, up there. And he points up in the balcony and there's this very slim, 
figure uh, wrapped in like the Invisible Man, uh, just like in the movie, Invisible Man. Right. He was wrapped in a reddish-orange cloth kind of covering. They covered his head, too. And then he had sunglasses on his on his face over the, the 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 material so i don't know how he was able to see anything he and he was wearing uh, uh silver shoes uh, uh leather silver shoes and uh we talked briefly um uh he definitely uh, you know said that he believed in aliens and uh he had had he had only to my knowledge although he was interested in the paranormal too but as far as ufos he had one experience and that happened when he was in his early 20s and he was flying on a he was in the cockpit of a plane uh that was moving over alaska when he sighted these these uh, uh very unusual uh, lights almost like crystalline type structures that were tumbling and multicolored and asked the pilot whether he had ever seen or knew what that was and he said he'd never seen it and didn't have any idea what it was and michael was like really you know really excited about it and then, uh, well, you know, uh, uh, E.T., the movie E.T., with his kids, he saw that, claimed that he saw that movie, I almost believe, like 200 times. Oh, my. Listen, i gotta, I got to jump in here, Michael. We've got to take a quick time out back on the other side. Michael Le- uh, Luckman, as we talk about aliens and rock and roll, right here. The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. And uh, we're back with Michael Luckman. And uh, sorry I had to jump in there, but uh, let's just uh, finish off that uh, uh, the Michael Jackson the story. You, you mentioned his fascination with UFOs, and he took his he, he went to see the movie E.T. Uh, several hundred times. Uh, uh, was there any more to that? Uh, that well, that? you know, he was also he was also uh, uh, Close Encounters was a uh, you know uh, uh, he loved that uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind very much so. And and uh, uh, by the way, he did Michael do did the uh, uh, E.T storybook which is basically a kids album uh and there's a picture of michael a, bi- a poster actually comes with the album it's a collectible now of uh, michael uh and uh, et uh, a portrait of them together he was really like he, when he saw et the first time on the set he he ran toward him and put his arms around him and so michael is like you know really uh into this stuff he he, he wanted to uh uh he wanted. He was very serious about this. He wanted to somehow get to the moon, and to moonwalk on the moon, and and presumably also perform for anyone who might be out there. And uh, he he spoke to a few people about it, and uh, including uh, somebody on his behalf got in touch with Edgar Mitchell, the Apollo 14 astronaut. At that time, it was you know almost an impossibility to get anyone. Uh, uh, up there or anywhere near there, uh, but um, you know, of course, now as we reach out, there there are these uh, at least trips to the edge of space, and and then of course there are the uh, uh, the Russians have, have for um, you know a, a couple of million dollars, uh, they'll send somebody up in a rocket. Um, uh, I'm not sure if they're guaranteeing a moon landing or not, but but, but uh, it'll go pretty far. Uh, but, uh, yeah, Michael was, uh, really into this. He was also into, you know, paranormal things. Actually, I'm working on a, a whole separate book about Michael Jackson, which, uh, is going to be, um, an explosive book. I can't tell too much, say too much about it, except that, uh, it's, uh, has some very, uh, very revealing stuff, and it goes very deep. And, 
there's an interesting book, by the way, uh, that uh, I just got a, just bought today. Had heard about uh, Michael Jackson uh, allowed uh, Rabbi Botek, who was a friend of his, who right. lives in New York, Shmuley Botek, yes, yeah, to uh, do a um, uh, to record his some of his innermost thoughts about life and his his being, and uh, it's called the Michael Jackson tapes, and there's some extraordinary stuff in there which I'll be quoting uh, in my book, but then my book goes off into other, you know, other directions. Uh, but it's, it's uh, uh, including his religious and spiritual beliefs and things like that. Right. But there are also some very controversial components about it, uh, which is, uh, you know, which I've uh, been doing research on and still working on. Sure. Uh, let's, uh, we're, this is a short segment. We'll break again here shortly, but let's at least begin this discussion and focus a little bit on the, the alien abduction phenomenon. And a, a number of uh, uh, rock musicians... Uh, sincerely believe that they've been abducted, and we mentioned John Lennon, somewhat suspected, uh, although perhaps didn't believe it uh, 100%. But um, this is this was a surprise for me. I, I didn't realize. Uh, I was a, a, I'm a big Cat Stevens fan. Yeah. Uh, his politics and so forth, maybe aside, but yeah. but uh, uh, love his music. I didn't realize that that Cat Stevens had had uh, what might be described as an alien abduction experience. Yeah, uh, Cat Stevens, uh, he, uh, he downplays it, but uh, he definitely made uh, references of, you know, flying, flying objects and stuff in his songs. Uh, but uh, he had some kind of experience where he, uh, and there's not much detail on this, but he uh, uh, feels that he was abducted. There was some missing time incident uh, connected with it. And uh, I can't tell you too much about Cat Stevens because it was very flimsy. Uh, you know, very no details really on that on that account. Uh, but I believe he did have something along those lines. Uh, but uh, John Lennon, incidentally, when he was when he and May Peng saw this giant flying saucer uh, at close range, John actually and he's standing naked, by the way, and she was undressed too. <laughs> he yells to the flying saucer, "Stop! Wait! Take me with you!" <laughs> so he was all ready to go. But, uh, you know, uh, uh, there are um, uh, uh, people like um, Ace Freely. Sure. Well, uh, we should talk about we should talk about. Yeah, yeah, we'll talk about Ace when we come back. Ace Freely, of course, uh, who some may not be surprised to learn. Right. (laughs) Was an alien abductee. Uh, And also, of course, uh, Jerry Garcia. Uh, from the Grateful yeah, Dead, although, yeah, we'll talk about that as well. Michael Luckman, Alien Rock, the Rock and Roll, extraterrestrial connection right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. And we are back with Michael Luckman, director of the New York Center for Extraterrestrial Research, founder of The Cosmic Majority, author of a number of books, including Alien Rock, the Rock and Roll, extraterrestrial connection, and uh, look for a sequel on that book coming soon. Uh, that'll include Hollywood stars and other celebrities. Uh, so let's talk about uh, Ace Frehley, uh, former uh, guitarist with uh, Kiss, and uh, his abduction story. Well, yeah, uh, Ace uh, had a uh, uh, a, uh, uh, a home on uh, upstate New York, and uh, he had a, a, a missing time experience that was accompanied by a a uh, very large um, uh, circle, like a crop circle, but it was more of a burn mark, very large, maybe a couple hundred feet across, uh, on his property. 
So he's very, you know, very, very, very into this stuff. In fact, he's one of the people I'm trying to uh, put uh, uh, to reach uh, out to uh, a number of uh, rock stars and other celebrities uh, to see whether they would be interested in accompanying me to this um, underwater uh, base, uh, or what's being called an underwater base, uh, in Malibu, California. Malibu uh, has this, uh, it, it, from, from looking at the pictures, it, it's caused a tremendous uh, sensation on the Internet. Uh, there's, an opening, uh, there's an opening below the water. Uh, th- this is a very large, uh, roundish or disc-shaped, um, probably geological uh, uh, structure, natural structure, but very unusual. It, it's it's two thousand foot across, maybe three thousand foot across. It has what appear like columns at an entrance. <clears throat> and the columns are about six hundred foot tall. Hmm. And the, the, a lot of UFOs have been seen. Hundreds of people through the years have reported UFOs going into not only uh, above the ocean of the Pacific, but going in, entering the ocean. And so it's our belief that that's where they're hiding. Well, that's interesting because uh, there's NASA uh, or their Jet Propulsion Laboratory just has de- – they've developed a, a space rover prototype. They say is being developed to explore underwater uh, sort of icy seas in yeah. outer space. Um, but some are speculating that uh, it's actually being used – uh, to see if they can find alien life or UFOs in our own oceans. What do you think? Well, of that? I think so. I think that there's a good possibility of that. I can't prove it, but everything about the way that they operate, I mean, they're certainly, first of all, they're very close with the uh, Defense Department. Uh, they're, they're really hand-in-glove with the Defense Department. Uh, so that alone would be a reason. Uh, we know from former... Uh, uh, former uh, uh, FOIA documents uh, that have been released, uh, that there's all kinds of underwater activity, has been for a very long time. Uh, that's been documented by the, uh, naval, the Navy and other departments of the military. And uh, so that's where, you know, that's the right place for, for extraterrestrials to hide. I mean, uh, 70% of, the, uh, of our planet is covered by water. What better place to hide? I'm sure that that's where... Most of them are hiding the ones that that are you know in a solid in a solid form, and uh, I think that this is clearly is the, is the new frontier in uh, UFO research, and I think NASA is very very likely uh, to uh, frankly I mean if NASA wanted to go there tomorrow and move they they started in this underwater probe in Alaska. But if they wanted to go to, in fact, they could do no better thing, really, as far as I'm concerned, than to go to Malibu, California, to investigate that uh, so-called alien base. Well, I I just, uh, uh, last week or the week before, I I interviewed uh, Don Ledger, uh, who who wrote um, the book Dark Object about, of course, what I call Canada's Roswell, which was the Shag Harbor UFO incident in 1967, and of course... Uh, that's a very celebrated case of a, uh, a some sort of a flying disc landing on the water uh, and then disappearing under the depths and then being seen further offshore uh, uh, of Nova Scotia. So I think there's definitely some credence to that idea that these these craft are are landing and taking off 
uh, in the ocean because there's some sort of a, a base. So maybe they're not extraterrestrial at all, Michael. Maybe they've always been here. Well, you could make that argument. Uh, let's uh, just talk while there's a few moments that remain uh, about the late Jerry Garcia of the Grateful Dead. Of course, they're coming up on their 50th anniversary. There's talk of a, a Grateful Dead reunion, of course, without their celebrated frontman. Jerry passed away about, uh, oh, geez, now it's been over 15 years, I think. Yeah. Uh, but Jerry, let's face it, Jerry had a, a penchant for, for pharmaceuticals. So how much of this story do you think... Uh, is, is believable? How much is it attributed perhaps to some sort of drug-induced hallucination? It's uh, very, very hard to say um, uh, because uh, I've read Jerry's comments on uh, this case. Uh, basically, uh, what happened is he felt that he was trapped inside some kind of a large spaceship for two days and that he was confronted by what he called insectoid type of presences, very tall, uh, kind of praying mantis-looking uh, creatures. Of course, this sounds crazy. Uh, I even have a hard time with it, uh, but, but other abductees have reported that from time to time. It's not something that happens. It's not a common occurrence in the abductee field, but it does happen to some people. But Jury also um, admitted that there, you know, uh, he claimed that he wasn't on DMT. Uh, DMT is a, a very powerful psychedelic, and he claimed that he, of course, he used a lot of drugs, but at, at various times. But he claimed that he wasn't on this drug when he uh, uh, saw, saw this. He, you know, he said he, it wasn't from DMT, although he agreed that it was very similar to what m somebody might get on a DMT experience. Now, the overwhelming majority of the people who are in my book uh, are cases where there have been people who, you know, eyewitnesses, people who have not been on drugs to corroborate what they saw. Uh, there have been multiple witnesses and things like that. So, you know, it, it's, it's, there's no, uh, it, it's hard. In Jerry's case, however, it might be drug related. Um, also, uh, um, uh, uh, what uh, Jerry spoke about having uh, communication with an advanced being. Now, not the uh, praying mantis types, as far as we know, but uh, just at another time or at other times, hearing uh, a voice clearly in his ear that he didn't say what this voice was was telling him, but that it was definitely a higher intelligence, much higher intelligence than he felt that he was. And, um, you know, uh, uh, this comes right back to the question of our extraterrestrials or extraterrestrial musical forces in contact with, uh, with uh, rock stars. Um, just trying to remember whether Reg Presley, the lead singer of the Trogs, gets a mention in the book. He just, we just lost Reg a couple years ago, but he was a very vocal uh, spokesperson uh, about uh, UFO disclosure. Do you, do you yes, he was. He was very active. He put his money where his mouth was. He did a lot of investigation of crops, the crop circle phenomenon. He, he was also a, he was also a big believer in uh, the Anunnaki and the uh, uh, the uh, uh, the, uh, the uh, point of view expressed by uh, my Z late friend uh, Zechariah Sitchin. Right, right. So uh, he was 
he believed that the, that the gold that was not only mined but that was used by the Anunnaki to prolong uh, their life, that that gold, which is known as uh, uh, monatomic uh, gold or, or powdered white gold, there are different names for it, and it's available, by the way. It, it remains to be seen how you know how good the quality is and whether it's exactly what uh, they may have been using uh, to extend their life, but. Reportedly, they live very long lives, at least hundreds of years, and perhaps even longer than that. And uh, and and, and uh, uh, Reg's feeling was, oh, he's not, you know, he, as, he, there wasn't anything about the gold that could harm him, so he figured that he's better off taking it than not taking it. Now, he did die, I think it was of cancer. Yes. Uh, you know, but I don't think that that's an indictment of, of, of the use of of the gold, but nobody, there just isn't enough information on it, but there, it does corroborate with what we do know about the Anunnaki, and I, I must confess that I've thought about about whether I should take it myself, but I have some, my <laughs> own, uh, uh, you know, medical issues, so right, you never right. know what you can, whether that's really good for you. Well, we, we've been talking a lot about, uh, uh, you know, rock musicians that sort of had their heyday in the 60s and the 70s, right. uh, but uh, even... Um, you know, more modern-day rock icons, people like Robbie Williams. You mentioned uh, yes. that um, he has made a, a trip out to the East Seti Ranch uh, in hopes of catching a glimpse or making contact with, with yeah. uh, UFOs. Tell me about Robbie Williams and the East Seti Ranch. Yeah, well, Robbie, Robbie camped out there uh, for actually for two weeks with, with a crew, camera crew, and they recorded UFO uh, activity. Uh, this is uh, in Mount Snow in the state of Washington, near Mount Snow, where there's this ranch that James Gillian runs. And there are constant, constant, constant appearances of UFOs and unusual lights there uh, and that in that area. And if there was a, a place where if the human race wanted to try to establish contact, that would be the place to go, sort of the equivalent of Devil's Mountain. Uh, in the film Close Encounters, sure, that would be the place uh, uh, to go. So, Robbie, they did find, they did shoot UFOs. They 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 they, they photographed UFOs. I think it's on uh, the, uh, uh, the uh, Gillian Ranches of uh, their website. Uh, but Robbie also had several other uh, UFO experiences. And the most dramatic and unusual was one where a long strip of of light, almost like a, a black light or something. Uh, entered the studio where he was out in Los Angeles, and 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 uh, while they were recording a song for Alien Contact, and and zipped around the room, out around the studio, and then out the back door or the window or whatever. And uh, he also had a number of other experiences, and he even at one time was talking about forming a uh, UFO uh, uh, religion like a la the Scientology, but his own his own brand. Well, it's fascinating. Uh, it's a fascinating look uh, at rock and roll history from an entirely different perspective, another worldly perspective. And how about for you personally, Michael? We haven't talked about uh, uh, about your connection to uh, uh, the UFO phenomenon. Have you had a, a close encounter? Uh, no, actually, I'm not. Um, uh, I, based, I, I don't do a lot of traveling. I'm based uh, here in New York. Um, their UFOs have been seen in New York City, but, uh, you know, not that often. Uh, uh, Mohammed, we did have a sighting in Central uh, Park. Listen, got to run, but I, I really appreciate your time. I enjoyed our conversation. Thanks, Richard. Appreciate it. Michael Luckman, Alien Rock, the rock and roll extraterrestrial connection.
My thanks to producer Tim Spreen and to all of you who, uh, extra, take two. My thanks to producer Tim Spreen and, of course, to all of you for listening. Uh, Back next week with a brand new show. Hope you'll be along for the ride. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There is nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.